0: Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Recording in my home office with special guest appearances from My Cat Chicken, probably, and maybe the Wild Parrots next door. It's pretty smoky outside. We don't really know. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that's influenced their own work in some small way. Today, I'm very excited to have writer-director Rachel Lee Goldenberg here with me. Hi. Hello. Hello, hello. Um, So for those of you who would like a refresher on uh, Rachel's life and career, this is it. Uh, Rachel is an Emmy award-winning producer, director, and writer. She began her career directing B-movies for a Roger Corman-esque company called The Asylum, uh, which our listeners are probably more familiar with than many other places, um, uh, where she was able to delve into many different genres and earn her 10,000 hours, which is very important. Her forte then became a sometimes oddball, risky, and artfully camp comedy, which she's honed by directing TV shows, including The Mindy Project, Looking for Alaska, I'm Sorry, Divorce, Everything's Gonna Be Okay, and Man Seeking Woman. Her first feature was the wild meta-lifetime TV movie, A Deadly Adoption, starring Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig. In 2014, while serving as the White House liaison for Funny or Die, she won a Primetime Emmy Award for producing Between Two Ferns with President Obama. Her directing work at Funny or Die includes Snack Apocalypse, starring Michelle Obama, Mary Poppins Quits with Kristen Bell promoting minimum wage increases, and Modern Office, starring Christina Hendricks advocating for workplace equality for women, to name just a few. She most recently directed MGM's Valley Girl, a musical remake of the 1983 cult classic that Hollywood reporter called a totally bitchin' guilty pleasure. Up next, uh, Goldenberg directed and co-wrote one of HBO Max's first original film features, Unpregnant. It's available now while you're listening to this, on HBO Max. Um, the film is based on the 2019 novel of the same name by Ted Kaplan and Jenny Hendrix and produced by Greg Berlanti, Sarah Schechter, and Eric Feig. It tells the story of a teenage girl who needs to get across state lines for an abortion, and the only one she can turn to for help is her weird ex-best friend. So um, you've got a lot of things going on. And I love the movie that you chose to talk about today because it's going to be able to easily intersect with your work and specifically with Unpregnant. But Rachel, the movie that you chose to talk about today is Thelma and Louise. Can you give us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films?
1: Yes. I mean, it's no, um, it's no accident that it is easy to talk about with the movie that I made recently because one of the things that got me excited about making that film is – that Thelma and Louise is one of my absolute favorite movies. Uh, and I would say one of the few movies I think might be perfect. Uh, I just, the performances, the plotting, it's the cinematography is beautiful. It's just uh, easier to say things I don't
0: like about it than things I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be saying mostly the things that you do like about it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, it's just we don't have time for me to say everything I like about it. So, you know, I can just give my one note and then we can move on. And, you know,
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's great. It's a perfect movie. Um, But for those of you who haven't seen it yet, Thelma and Louise, uh, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Thelma and Louise first, this is your shot. And now let me introduce Thelma and Louise with a quick synopsis. Written by Callie Corey and directed by Ridley Scott for release in 1991, Thelma and Louise stars Gina Davis as Thelma and Susan Sarandon as Louise, best friends in rural Arkansas, heading off on a short vacation to a cabin to escape Thelma's dumb husband and Louise's on-again, off-again boyfriend. On the way, they stop at a bar where Thelma dances with a man who then attempts to rape her in the parking lot. Louise breaks it up with a gun, threatening to shoot him. You let her go, you fucking asshole, or I'm gonna splatter your ugly face all over this nice car. He relents, but then hurls insults at them and says he should have raped Thelma. Louise then turns around and shoots him out of anger. And he's dead. The women return to the car knowing something has irrevocably changed their lives. The women assess the situation. If they go to the police, the attempted rape might not be believed. Their only choice is to flee to Mexico. So? They head west. God damn it, Thelma. Every time we get in trouble, you just get blank or, or, or pleading insanity or some such shit. Not this time. I mean, this time, things have changed. Everything's changed. But I'm going to Mexico. I'm going. On the way, they meet J.D., played by Brad Pitt, who hitches a ride with the women. Trying to get back to school. My ride fell through, and well, I'm kind of stuck here like stink on stink. So I was thinking that... Uh, you're going my way or I'm going your way. I think we're going to Oklahoma City, but I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I would appreciate it much. Louise calls her boyfriend and has him wire her life savings to her, but he shows up in person instead with cash in hand and asks her to marry him. Meanwhile, Thelma's sleeping with JD, who's discovered uh, to be a thief, which makes it not surprising that he has taken off with the cash the next morning. I've never been lucky, not one time. Shit! That son of a bitch burdened me. I don't believe it. Thelma feels fucking terrible for letting this happen, so she takes a few tips from JD's exploits and robs a store to get money. Let's see who won a prize for keeping their cool. Sir, would you do the honors? Take all the cash out of that girl, put it in a paper bag. Yes, ma'am. You're gonna have an amazing story to tell all your friends. not, you'll have a tag on your toe. You decide. Unfortunately, the FBI is closing in on them. Um, So this only kind of splashes them on the radar a little bit more. Enter Arkansas investigator Hal Slocum, played by Harvey Keitel, who's hot on their tails, but he's also very sympathetic to their struggles. He gets it, they didn't come forward because they didn't trust the justice system. Hal's able to get Louise on the phone eventually and try to persuade her to turn herself in.
1: You're getting in deeper every moment you're gone.
0: Would you believe me if I told you this whole thing was an accident?
1: I do believe you. That's what I want everybody to believe. Trouble is, it doesn't look like an accident. And you're not here to tell me about it. I need your help here. Get Harlan Puckett. I don't want to talk about it. You want to come on in? Don't think so. Then I'm sorry.
0: We're going to have to charge you with murder. He's unsuccessful. The damage has been done. The two women get in deeper and deeper, locking an officer in the trunk of his car when he t- uh, pulls him over, taking joy in blowing up a rude truck driver's rig, too. Ah! It is, perhaps, the most freedom they've ever had, and yet the two aren't quite open and honest with one another. Louise has a painful history, not worth quite bringing up completely. At the edge of the Grand Canyon, the FBI finally catches up with them. Hal tries to take control of the situation, but the FBI shoos him away. The women decide that instead of being captured, they're going to keep going. Let's keep going.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah. They kiss and accelerate over the cliff and we freeze frame on their glorious moment. And that's the end. Um, This movie has a a really wonderful story. And it's it's one of those films where it was so popular, uh, had such a great box office and you thought, oh, there's going to be so many more to follow, like obviously Hollywood. Would saying, no. So this is kind of like a case study of, of um, Hollywood of a certain moment and of this time too, of um, something that is wildly successful built for a kind of female audience that, that crosses over is just beloved by many people. Um, and and yet it kind of couldn't escape its microcosm. Um, but the idea came to Callie Corey, who wrote it, one day late in 1987, um, it was when she was a producer on pop music videos. She hadn't written a script before, but she pulled into her driveway um, on the way home from work, and she wrote down in her notebook, like the idea just came to her, screenplay idea. Two women go on a crime spree. They're leaving town, both leaving behind their jobs and families. They kill a guy, rob a store, get hooked up with a young guy, end quote. Uh, <laughs>
1: I mean, what an idea. Yeah, you got to run with that. If you have that idea, run with it.
0: It's like inspiration strikes. You're in your yeah. driveway and you are like hate your job. And <laughs> you've never written a script before, but you're like, God damn it. I know how to tell a story. Yeah,
1: it's so – it's it does feel inspired. It just feels so – um so untethered by the rules, the laws of society, you mm-hmm. know, just to, it's sort of just being able to think that big and not that big, like, Oh, we'll add, uh, monsters and an alien attack, but just that big to, to buck social constraints is, I mean, it's, it's exciting,
0: you know? Um, I am very curious, uh, to know your thoughts on, um, writing, kind of messy women characters, because I feel like you're, you know, probably going to get a lot of either praise or kind of backlash against, you know, two young women who are um, going off to to procure an abortion. Um, but I, I think that one of the things that really struck me about Kelly Curry talking about this film in particular is how so many people did not accept these very messy human female characters. She said, quote, I hear people getting their knickers in a big twist about what this movie is supposed to be. There's so much talk about whether it's a feminist screenplay, whether it's a male-bashing movie. It's none of those things. I am a feminist, so clearly it is going to have my point of view. But this is a movie about outlaws, and it's not fair to judge it in terms of feminism. People say Thelma and Louise are not role models. Well... They were never intended as role models, for God's sake. I don't want anybody doing anything they saw in this movie. They are out—they outlaw, are outlaws who should be punished and are. I do not justify their actions, end quote. But I think it's an interesting thing that she had to kind of speak on behalf of these characters and say like, yeah, they're not role models. What? Why would, why would I have to <laughs> yeah. tell you this? <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm, when I'm working on writing a character or bringing a character to life as a director, I'm not really thinking so much about should this be a messy character or not? I'm just trying to make them feel real to me, mm-hmm. you know? And so knowing that sort of there's a really simplistic version of this duo where one's sort of uptight and, you know, kind of a classic odd couple, like one's uptight and one's crazy and and that's – and they're going to drive each other crazy. Watch this. Yeah. Um, but then – and and I think that dynamic is, is funny and works and a great source of comedy, but then making their – Finding more depth than that and finding ways that I can relate to both characters and understand where they're coming from and see why they act the way they do and and show you know no one fits into simple boxes um so trying to bring bring out depth and life to the characters.
0: You know, and, and speaking about, like, bringing out depth and life to the characters, yes, there's the things that you see on screen, um, or sorry, on the page that your actors will get when they read the script and and all that. But of course, there's always going to be, um, you know, some character studies, sometimes some scene work that kind of brings out those character studies, sometimes people like write whole backgrounds about their uh, characters. But the way that Gina Davis was talking about in, in terms of working with Callie Corey on on this, it was a very, very detailed um, uh, uh, process that she had with Kelly Corey of like figuring out down to like the smallest, smallest thing, like what this character does, um, what brand of a product that they buy. Um, She said, quote, I'd been hearing about this great script with not one, but two great parts for women, which is a very unusual event. I first saw it about a year before we began shooting and just loved both the parts. It's not often you see parts for two fully realized women characters and have a movie be about women's adventures and journeys. And from the the way that Callie Corey writes, you could tell she knew these characters inside out. I knew that if I needed to find out the color of the toothpaste Thelma used, I could call Callie and she would know, end quote. And that's something also that, um, uh, that Ridley Scott was saying is that Callie Corey would be taking very late night phone calls from both actresses just being like, oh, I need to ask you about this. And then Callie Corey would be like, of course I know the answer.
1: (laughs) I'm sure Callie did. I'm really good at coming up with an answer very quickly when needed. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, you know, I, I feel like, um, hopefully nine times out of 10 when, the actors and I are talking about something it's something I've already thought of but also I think it's um important for people to feel like they're in good hands and so it, it's, you know so there'll be there's times when it's nice to talk through things and figure them out and it's times when there's when I think it's beneficial to sort of just be the authority mm-hmm. of of the movie and what's supposed to be happening and show that there's confidence and it's coming from a perspective and you know so working with haley Lou Richardson she has she she really goes deep with character and she we did script work once she came on board because yeah. um, there were certain questions that she had and certain things she wanted to bring out of her character which were only helpful because I think that's such a cool thing about collaborating with with actors or really with with any crew member is that you know, I'm thinking about the big picture, but having someone have to deep dig so deeply into the granular of their particular element, mm-hmm. there's no way that I could have thought about every costume as much as our costumer did, or about you know every every angle of every part of the backstory of Veronica like Haley did, and so having people bring more elements and being able to talk through those and change it is 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 really um, is beneficial, but then also. Um, because because she does think so deeply there were times when she would feel a little bit lost because she uh she's thinking about the truth of the character and I'm thinking about the tone of the film I'm thinking about yeah. the movie yeah. and so there were there were a lo- many times when we had to sort of wrestle together with how she could do a how she could bring this character to life and bring her truth to it, and have it still fit in this movie. Um, and and we did end up doing it, but it, and and I, I love Haley, and, and will work with her again uh, as soon as as soon as I can. But yeah. it, it it was like a a real creative wrestling that was happening to sort of find the right for her to find the right tone and for me to help guide her there and for me to create truth for her in the scenes that still felt like the movie I knew I was making.
0: Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk more Thelma and Louise and Unpregnant and a bunch of other stuff that Rachel Lee uh, Goldenberg has done. And we'll be right back. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself,
1: a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being
0: in person, we're recording remotely and uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about this. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Okay. go ahead. And you
1: can listen to us uh, every week on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf and I'm joined today by Rachel Lee Goldenberg and we're talking about Thelma and Louise. Um, So something that we've talked about in other episodes uh, where Ridley Scott was the director, um, specifically Alien and Blade Runner, um, is the fact that he has a production design background and so he's very into storyboarding. Um, Now, this movie came after both of those films and so um, when... You know, I was looking through the interviews of how his process had changed. It had changed quite a bit back then he was still doing like almost solely his own storyboarding. um he wasn't he wasn't kind of relinquishing the reins to other people. And at this point in his career with Elma and louise he he was um he said quote, Storyboards are a key factor in the way I work. I storyboard everything. I start off with a blank page and simply begin to draw. Once I'm halfway through the first frame, the whole scene opens up in my head. I now do thumbnails and hand them into a real storyboard artist because they become a blueprint. They're not from me. The storyboards are Xeroxed handed to the first a- the first AD, cameraman, prop department, who look at it and figure out where they come in. It's a hugely important and useful preparation for me, end quote. Um, and so, you know, he's allowing that control a little bit to someone else. He still does like the initial kind of like shitty uh, sketches of it, but it is essentially the easiest way for him to get his crew on the exact same page that he knows what he's going to shoot that day and how. Um because he does stick to those storyboards quite a bit, unless there's like some kind of thing mm-hmm. with lighting that catches his eye and he's just like, oh, shit, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but those storyboards are, are very much the blueprint. Um, and I know some indie directors do like doing storyboards, some like doing photographs where you actually just go into the space and kind of like do blocking and photograph it that way. How do you tend to set up shots and, and convey that to your crew and cast?
1: Well, you know, it's funny that you say that, that Ridley Scott is a big storyboarder because he started in commercials. And mm-hmm. the only time I do storyboards is when I'm in commercials because uh-huh. they're mandatory in commercials and mm-hmm. they, they, um, in commercials, they're, uh, sort of restrictive. It's like, this is your to-do list for the day. And if you don't complete this, then you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, and, and, and people, you know, and clients will point to them and say, but in the storyboard, we could see a little more of her outfit. And, you know, and it, they become like this gospel that's sort of very annoying to me. <laughs> um, and, uh, and has, has never been that attractive to me. Um, if I, if I was a, an excellent, Artist, perhaps I would get excited about storyboarding, but I'm I'm not a fine artist whatsoever. Um, I have there's a Herzog quote that storyboards are for cowards that I sort <laughs> yeah, to hold yeah. on to. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I love shot listing. I get really detailed with shot listing. I do it with my cinematographer, and we look at the scene and. I, Many times I've already sort of got a rough idea, but then pitch that and they hit back with better ideas or we mm-hmm. do overhead sketches and then picture how the blocking could go and, um, and shot list from there. But depending on the scene, it really, the scene really dictates how specific the vis- the visuals need to be or not to me. Yeah. So something like the, um, the train scene where the, the girls and Unpregnant are running for the train mm-hmm. because because we're trying to do sort of a specific genre e action thing where we're building excitement, yeah. I knew exactly the type of coverage that we needed for that. I knew we needed a ton of angles. I need, knew we needed specific angles to make the train feel fast and the train feel big and the girls feel chaotic. Um, and so that was really specific. But then something like uh, like their fight scene, I knew that I just wanted to be able to cross-shoot and let them, we planned out blocking, but really let them find it and let them go and have the angles and be able to be sort of loose with it. Um, and, you know, and, and I will always go in with a shot list and then depending on the scene, it'll depend how, how much we actually stick to it or how much we create something totally different, um, once we once we see it or once you know time is slipping by and the sun is going down or whatever it is.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it, that's also uh am am I right to assume that you had th- that you were working with one camera on this or did you have multiple cameras on this? We were on, two on- cameras. You were two um, cameras. Two
1: cameras the whole movie and then for the racetrack scene and for the car chase scene we had more cameras. I think we had four maybe for each of those.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the Scott brothers, both Ridley and Tony have, you know, RIP Tony, but um, they are huge proponents of um, shooting multiple cameras on every scene all the time, Um, specifically because of like what you're talking about of just like if the light's going here and you're just trying to hurry and all that kind of thing. Um, That's something, for instance, whenever the women were like sitting at a table together or a booth, there was always the two cameras set up. Um, And so that means that they were lighting specifically usually for like one kind of one side of their face kind of so that half of their face would be in shadow and the other half would have like a, a nice kind of like golden sun on them and and so the cameras were usually about uh three inches out of frame at any point in time so like you don't really have much wiggle room you're just kind of doing a back and forth and and hoping that like the scene remains beautiful um but the way that uh, ridley scott said was quote we had two cameras working opposite each other because the lighting was all coming from the back so the light on their faces was beautiful and this is for that beautiful scene in the um and the diner where they're just like sitting and there's like golden sun after Michael Madsen's left. Um, And it's why the scene looks so good. We didn't do everybody one way first, then Jimmy the other way next. What frequently happens when you do one camera at a time, you spend two and a half hours one way and come around. The actors come off camera for a while and run out of steam. So it's terrible, end quote. And I think that that's in, in terms of... I think a, I think a good director can probably keep their actors' energy up, even if you have to do like a setup that's like reversed. I think that that's you know part of the deal. But also, I understand exactly what Ridley Scott is saying when in terms of if you see how that scene cuts together, how beautiful that light is shining onto them and their performances, and it's just like you can tell that the performances that they have are. Um, that they that they got in the edit are from the same take, and that's something mm-hmm. that's really beautiful. Um, how how do you feel about about that kind of thing when it comes to you know catching dialogue, trying to trying to keep things like moving and scene, allowing the actors like some room to to work in that way?
1: Um, I generally don't prefer cross shooting in most cases. Uh, I th- I think I think that the thing about having multiple cameras is making sure that you're prioritizing one shot and then seeing what else you can get. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes there's two shots on your shot list that will work perfectly in tandem and you can shoot them at the same time. But if not, I, I, I push back against ever saying, well, why don't we just sort of do the not quite as good version of this other shot that you have on the shot list? We'll just use the second camera to get that. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Um, I I want the shots to be good. Um, But so (laughs) Uh, so, so that's really what it is. It's working backwards from what's the, let's figure out what are A cameras doing right now. And then let's figure out something great to do with B camera. And if there's not something that I was thinking of to get with it, if you have, if you have strong operators, I I have a couple operators who you can just say, can you just find some cool shit while we're doing this? Can you get some shots that I never would have thought of? And you get these really interesting shots because they have to find some weird corner to tuck in and it's some angle that I never would have thought of yeah. that ends up being really interesting and fun and um, it's just sort of a bonus. And and in terms of the energy of the actors, um, I, I totally agree. I hate having everyone go back to their trailer for long periods of time. It's my least favorite thing, but that's usually the way I tackle that is the cinematographer and I having a conversation about setups not being that long <laughs> and knowing, okay, mm-hmm. there's a few things, this giant carnival scene, you know, don't have the actors come in for hours because we're going to do a big lighting sequence yeah. on it, but then they're going to get fucking shots. tired. Yeah. And everyone's going to be miserable and cold by the end anyway. But, um, but you know, making sure that our turnarounds and our, are, are pretty quick. And I'm, I'm also just sort of an impatient person uh, by nature. And so I will be always sort of wandering on set saying, Hey, are we, are we close? Can we get going soon? Do you think we're almost ready? And, uh, and hopefully uh, not annoying people too much though. I'm sure I do, but you know, I, I think it's, I think the, the energy and the pace is as important as, as, um as anything else really. And coming from working from silent movies, asylum movies where we'd have, you know, 10 page days, 12 page days, I'm used to really flying. So yeah. when we only have five pages a day to shoot, that feels easy to me or, or manageable, certainly. And so I really just like to keep the energy, you know, something nice thing about those really, really low budget movies is that everyone's all hands on deck all the time. And then the farther you get from that, um, I don't love shooting on stages. Like I, I, I've done it on a lot of TV shows because mm-hmm. I feel like people sort of just get relaxed and sort of well we'll get to it and we get to it and oh now we're ready for the actors and like that's not really the energy i like i like like we're all in it together we've got to keep moving what are we doing next i if i have a if we have a really big day i'll walk the actors through the entire day even sometimes if it's something more actiony up to the angle so that we're all on the team of okay now here's when we're going to do this part of it um
0: yeah to just keep
1: momentum and keep everyone on team
0: movie i mean that's it's when you're working on a tv set though i I've, feel like as a director, it seems like you might not have the the most control over trying to get that energy, um, maintained and, and that kind of standard that you want.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think also it's just, it's unfair to expect, um, people who are working on a show for 10 months of the year to have the same energy that they would working on six weeks. And so I've just had to learn to accept those as different mediums and that, it's just a, a different, it's just a different energy coming in. And it's a different, I've, I've, I've learned to accept the differences in the energy and uh, and film is a little bit more my speed, but I, I have fun mm-hmm. on TV when I can sort of accept what what the vibe is of the set. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're not going to come in today and be like, oh, I heard Rachel Lee Goldenberg's here. We better yeah. be on our best behavior. <laughs> Yeah or like
1: oh my god like season like
0: season 4 episode 3 this is
1: going to be the best one yet we're ready you know there's just like that energy is really hard to capture and, and you know p- people are people are great i'm not saying anything about the people it's just the the mood you know you just can't maintain that energy it's no a one job. Yeah. in the same way <laughs> that you can when you come in for a movie and then separate and get time off in between and you know. yeah
0: we're going to take another break when we come back we'll talk more thelma and louise with uh, rachel lee goldenberg and uh, and a bunch of other stuff we'll be right back Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. Together, we're The Flophouse. A podcast where we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. Movies like Space Hobos, Into the Outer Reaches of the Unknown and the Things that We Don't Know, the movie, and also Who's That Grandma?
1: Zazzle Zippers, Breakdown 2, and Backhanded Compliment.
0: Elvis is a Policeman. Baby Crocodile and the Happy Twins. Leftover Potatoes? Station Wagon 3. Herbie Goes to Hell. New episodes available every other Saturday. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye! Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf and I'm joined today by Rachel Lee Goldenberg and we're talking about Thelma and Louise. Um, You know, you mentioned earlier that you have a train scene, as does this film. There's a train scene. They have like a very um, uh, long conversation, Thelma and Louise, in the car as a train passes. Um, And I thought that was interesting um, in the commentary. uh, Actors and Ridley Scott were talking about how that's actually a very difficult kind of thing to shoot. Um, He said, quote, this is a difficult scene because you can't have the train going by when we're doing the dialogue. So I have to have both actresses shouting. I had to fake it with a wind machine and have them both screaming their heads off at each other. So later we can mix the train over them and still hear the dialogue. Party scenes are a nightmare too because you have to put loud music up and everyone has to shout at each other, end quote. And Gina Davis was saying that they had uh, little earpieces in that played very loud train sounds. Like <laughs> oh, that's he was so just funny. like. You just like made a collection of train sounds and they put like, (laughs) <laughs> you know, ear pods in before ear pods. And um so the whole time that they were shooting that, they actually couldn't hear, even though there was no train, it was just a wind machine. They were just Oh, like, I've
1: never heard of doing that. That's such a good idea. Isn't it great? I love that. Because I mean, it's then, probably very annoying for the actors, uh, but helpful maybe. <laughs> yeah. They said it was
0: helpful and they said it was just like they were just like kind of like screaming themselves hoarse, but it was the they were able to find the right volume and authenticity of like having to shout over a noise to make it seem correct. but i didn't really ever think about that because i i think the way that the shot is con- so composed of of that wind machine blowing and then also kind of like shadows passing over their face so is just like oh it's beautiful fucking movie magic like this is amazing <laughs> yeah. um but you know party scenes i've heard um in in other uh shows uh, episodes that we've done that party scenes are often um just total bullshit <laughs> They're very hard to yeah. shoot. Um, how did you how how have you historically handled things like this?
1: So so, Unpregnant has two scenes: the train scene, two that I'm thinking of right now, at least the train scene and the racetrack scene mm-hmm. uh, were both scenes that we ha- picked our angles really carefully that we would have the actor and the action in the same frame and then isolate our angles um, where we could actually get good takes on the dialogue and know it would be clean. And we did a similar, uh, I hadn't even remembered about that, that film and Louise train scene when we were shooting, but we did the same thing with, um, with a wind machine and with the passing shadows passing by, you know, some grip waving a flag really fast past them mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to make it feel like it was running by and then, you know, but that was after, I think, you know, the important thing is just uh, having the actors understand what the scene would feel like and then doing the fakie part second. So we did, we shot everything with the train, you know, the very first take that we did of the train was with them running up to the train. We figured out the safe distance that they could be from the train and we picked a lens that made it feel like they were close to the train Mm -hmm. and really had them run up to it and scream and, you know, and, be scared uh you know i mean it was one of those things where uh it's you know it's such a movie thing to jump on trains and then i was talking to Haley and barbie about it i was like look at this train like look how hard and scary it would yeah. be to <laughs> jump on this train you know we <laughs> watched it watch fly by us during a rehearsal It was like picture that jump like that's going to be terrifying and they were like you know (laughs) I had to keep sort of reminding them how scared to to be to not get ahead of the fact that they're never going to jump on the train spoiler alert Um, because it's insane it's like what you're going to just grab on to something it doesn't like it's it it feels (laughs) impossible Um, uh, but yeah so I think you know but so they got to have the wind rushing by them and and the Doug, the cinematographer, and I got to see what it looks like when the train's rushing by them. And then we, you know, then we give the train a break and we shoot with them yeah. um, with, with all our movie magic.
0: Yeah. Man, movie magic. Just that simulation. <laughs> I thought that, it's that my was my favorite. I, mean,
1: I, I have one. I I can't take credit for it. I think I was producing this, but one Asylum movie that had the best, like, just, I remember being like, movies are amazing. What was which it? Which was this, this scene where... I forget the name of it. It's like, you know, Snow Apocalypse or something. It's like a some sort of icy ice age something. Ice yeah. age attacks the country. But there's a scene where this uh this SUV is supposed to f- uh drive into a lake and then the ice cracks and it sinks and we had like wind machine going and some fake snow going and then they just lifted a board with ice like up over like just it's like a you know, you know like a two by four foot board that just has a little layer of fake ice on it. And they just lifted it up and rose over the window. And it like, and you look at camera and it sold perfectly. It was insane. And it just felt like the, you know, like the cheapest, easiest, most fun special effect thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's what asylum does. (laughs) does <laughs> does really well. <laughs> yeah, like, as a factory almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean that. I I still feel like I think that kind of school of filmmaking has to be the most kind of exceptional, wonderful kind of school. I think like more than film school. Just like how do you do this in in the yes, wild? You get to
1: yes, you get to mess around a lot. You get to just try shit. Like it's just uh like you know because also because anyone who's working there probably hasn't worked on anything bigger than that this is the biggest biggest thing you've worked on so you're Mm -hmm. you don't have models for things so it's like every script you get you're just starting from scratch of like okay this is an epic lord of the Rings style battle how does one shoot that like what do you (laughs) what do you do and we have and we have 20 a total of 20 extras for what's supposed to be like this war of civilizations. All right, well, how do we make that look like a lot of people? Let's figure it out, you know? <laughs> um, so the sort of like roll up your sleeves aspect of it is really exciting and something that's um, hard to replicate. You know, it's it, the traces of that are in everything I do, but how pure that is of just looking at this insane script, knowing you have zero money and you don't know really what you're doing and <laughs> digging in is just like such a pure form of exhilaration.
0: (laughs) And I, I, there's one thing I want to bring up too, and it comes to like kind of capturing that, like impromptu Americana that I am very curious your thoughts on because of, um, the dance numbers that you had to film in Valley Girl, but the line dancing sequence in Thelma and Louise was something that was really interesting to me, especially after listening to the commentary because Ridley Scott said, quote, I had all these expert dancers and during the lunch break, Charlie on the on the guitar was bashing away on the stage and I witnessed this line dancing take place. I'd never seen this before and one of the old diehards in the bar said to me, this is something we do now, it's a lot of fun. And I said, okay, show me. So the whole room jumped Jumped up and did it. And because it's not rehearsed, it's ragged, but I like it ragged. The danger is if we choreograph, choreograph it, it would look too perfect and quote. Um and the choreographer of this the person uh, who was who was taking on like the dance um uh, choreography that they did have uh, was Patrick Swayze's mother, very accomplished dancer in her own right, pa- uh, Patricia, I believe. Um and um you know, she was did an amazing job but they wanted to have this very kind of rugged thing and so you feel like you can feel the energy where he's just like w- got the camera going through these lines of, mm-hmm. of this line dancing and it was just like yeah this is what's actually happening like we could choreograph something we could do a two-step or we can do what's actually happening in america and yeah and i just appreciate that willingness to kind of go with it
1: yeah so on Valley Girl, we did have a mix because we had, of course, uh, our wonderful choreographer, Mandy Moore, did very specifically choreograph a number of our sequences. But then there were also... there was We had sort of an ethos that the valley should be more choreographed and Hollywood should be less choreographed um, mm-hmm. or unchoreographed and sort of more wild. And so uh, she got dancers to do some of that but gave them very little instruction. But then the other thing is that I... I went to punk clubs around Los Angeles um like everything from uh this this little venue the smell downtown to to literal warehouses um like in Redondo like I mm-hmm. I went to just as as underground a punk shows as I could find and ended up um just going up to teenagers there and asking if they would be in my movie um because they were danced the way that they danced was so specific and so wild and so just personal, um, that it, you know, it's hard to replicate that or tell someone dance really crazy. And if you're not feeling it or you're not in that mode, then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to bring that across. So we, we did end up having, um, a handful of those, of those, you know, real punk teens <laughs> come out and and mosh in some of our moshing scenes and stuff. And they, not only were they fantastic to watch, but I think they really sort of inspired all the rest of our dancers and actors of what they, you know, what they can be doing and what they should be doing. And, mm-hmm. you know, their sort of bold, uh, just their ability to put themselves out there was, was helpful and inspiring for everyone, I think.
0: Yeah. And it's also kind of goes into what you're saying before, just like you would like to have a certain kind of energy on set. You don't want it to be, dull on set because it might be dull on screen and the last thing you want for a dance number <laughs> or a yeah, musical yeah. movie is yes. to be like low energy. <laughs>
1: yes, 100%. Um,
0: something that I uh, remembered from uh, my research on Thelma and Louise was that um, originally Callie Curry had been kind of uh Potentially thinking about making this a more serious film before Ridley Scott got involved. She's kind of going back and forth. Like she'd always had like some humor in it, but like never quite knew like what tone Hollywood was going to perceive. Um, and Ridley Scott was the one who kind of encouraged her and was just like, no, we can make this fun. And he said, quote, Thelma could have been handled in two ways. Serious Silkwood, and it would have become too documentary, too serious. I know at one stage, Callie was angling in that direction, saying, why not? And I was saying, because it could also be fun. And if it can be fun, it can reach a wider audience. And after all, that's what movies are about. Movies are an expensive medium. So my goal is to get as many bums in the seat as possible. Part of my job is giving the studio their cake and eating it, but also getting my cake and eating it, end quote. Um, (laughs) And that was kind of his guiding ethos of just like, this is going to have serious themes in it, but it's also going to be something with like quotable lines, characters that just make you smile when they show up on screen. And that kind of like almost Spielbergy intake of, of like, you need to put people in the seats. Like it has to be seen. <laughs> it has to be a blockbuster. And I'm always curious to get director's thoughts on that kind of thing. Um, how much, Time you might spend in kind of pleasing an imaginary audience that you kind of uh, hope will see this film? I try
1: not to put too much energy into thinking about the audience because it feels a little bit like a fool's errand. Just, uh, I don't know exactly what people are going to like or what's going to hit so the guiding force really needs to be what I like or what I would want to see or what I mm-hmm. think is interesting or funny. Um, so for me, like when I'm making something, you know, when I'm bringing comedic sequences into *Unpregnant*, it's not really me saying, Oh, I want to, see if I can trick people into seeing my movie. Um, it, it feels more like, Oh, this sounds like something fun that I'd like to watch. So I, I want, you know, I want to watch a car chase. Let's bring a car chase in <laughs> and I want to shoot a car chase. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But in terms of the, to- like that I love the film and Louise tone so much and that movies that so many movies that I love, I feel like do such a great job of balancing the comedy and the drama, um, Aaron Brockovich is one that I think about and reference all the time because it's just really a, such a great tone also. Yeah, I
0: think like Soderbergh and, and Ridley Scott and there's just like there's a there's a slim kind of like big Hollywood kind of directors who just know how to hit that sweet spot. Yeah. Of, it's of telling those stories and in fun ways well thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about Thelma and Louise and also your movie Unpregnant which is available to stream right now on HBO Max Um, so please watch that and uh, yeah thank you so much for coming on and talking about this uh, movie that I'm so surprised no one has picked yet, but you know, just got it. I I kept it. checking Magic. the
1: list. I was like, really? I'm okay,
0: great. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, knock it off the list. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at Switchblade Pod or email us at Sisters at maximumfun.org and please check out our Facebook group too. That's facebook.com slash groups slash Switchblade Sisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher and and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. You let her go, you fucking asshole. Or I'm going to splatter your ugly face all over this nice car. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.